welcome to the Proelium, which means the battle. The Joshua Lectures are an extension of New Antioch's classical education model. The intent of these lectures is to expose a larger audience to the understanding of the Lordship of Christ over all spheres of life. These lectures aim to address various topics within the disciplines of theology, philosophy, education, medicine, law, and ethics. Classical education engages these topics in a robust manner with an eye upon the cultural landscape and a mind transformed by the scriptures. For a reformation of today's vocations and institutions, Christians must be courageous and equipped to evoke real change for Christ. To be courageous without being equipped leads to defeat. To be equipped without possessing courage leads to disaster. New Antioch extends an invitation to you to come and experience these lectures in person. Each presenter approaches their topic with a substantial background of experience and or formal training in their particular discipline and endeavors to provide a careful and rigorous application of the Christian faith to life. Each evening's lectures will afford those in attendance the opportunity to ask questions of the guest lecturer through a moderated Q&A period following the presentation. If you would like more information, please email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. It is good to be back with you again, and uh, a warm greeting to those who are with us for the first time, and I trust that this will be useful to you even if you do not have the same background as some of our students have in the past lectures. We are entering into that part of the lecture series in which we are transitioning from a specifically or overtly biblical aspect of our uh, of our approach to the cultural and um, our next two lectures will be largely cultural commentary on where we are at and then in this lecture how we got here historically what are the predominating ideologies trajectories cultural phenomena that led to where we are right now. And then in the subsequent lecture, we will consider where we are now and where that is going to lead. And with both of these lectures, there are particular challenges that I have faced throughout the entire series and, and really whenever I, I speak on these subjects, but um, they're particularly um, obvious in this particular couple of lectures, and that is that uh, the scriptures tell us that there are things in which those who are wicked and debauched partake things, matters that pertain to the darkness that ought not to be spoken of. And there is some real caution that is needed when we speak of these matters. And I will do my best to to have that, that godly 
spiritual approach of being sensitive to what ought to be spoken of and what ought to be left to the darkness. Having said that, these are the times in which we live. And part of our mandate as New Antioch, if I can speak from a perspective not only of a lecturer, but also as a board member just for a minute, is to prepare young people for what they will face in this world. And so uh, cultural commentary is necessary. It's necessary to ready us for what we will face. And I will make some, probably some further comments um, as we go through on, on, I think, why this is particularly necessary. Um, but where are we right now? Maybe I'll start there. Well, there have been places and times throughout history, and we see this clearly in scripture, in which debauchery and degradation in society has been so thorough that it makes those who are moral um, respond with, with horror, with disgust. We can think of Sodom and Gomorrah, in which we have an occasion uh, in scripture of a homosexual gang rape or an attempted homosexual gang rape. And I think it's fairly clear uh, that that came out of a more, uh, more general culture in which moral degradation, uh, sexual immorality, and homosexuality had taken hold. Um, we see throughout history that, uh, that this is reflected in, in, in people like Herodotus, who wrote about various tribes throughout the world that he had visited outside of kind of the main cities that were known to uh, the Grecian world. And um, he actually quite salaciously described the marriage and sex customs of many of these tribes. Um, in its better parts, Herodotus reads as a kind of a good history mixed with some, some travelogue. It's actually, in many cases, quite light reading for, for an old book. Uh, and yet at other times, he seems to take delight in sharing some tantalizing tidbits that might have been of interest to his readers, and yet uh, which would certainly describe the debauchery of, uh, of, of pagan nations and would make us uh, have some measure of disgust and recall, recoil in that. Many people are unaware of the cocaine-fueled debauchery, sexual debauchery of the Weimar Republic between the First and Second World War in, in, uh, in Germany, in which there was widespread homosexuality, pornography, prostitution, child sex, and even bestiality. Um, it's fascinating to consider how that led into, in ways that were, um, in some ways, over and against that debauchery, again, in some ways, but in some ways consistent with it, how that led into then the Third Reich and, and uh, Nazi Germany as a fascinating cultural kind of conundrum and, and what, what was going on there. One of the things that we ought to note as we consider these historical realities, and, and I will mention what's going on right now in our culture momentarily, but, but one of the things that we ought to consider is how sexual immorality, uh, as we considered last week, is a very particular and heinous sort of sin. It represents a sin that is against one's body. Uh, 
Um, in this way, it is part of that triad I unfolded of representative heinous sins uh, with, with murder being against your fellow man, kind of outwardly oriented, and idolatry being oriented against God, kind of upwardly oriented, and sexual immorality being that inwardly oriented, sort of particularly heinous representative sin. But the sexual immorality surely demonstrates just how society degrading sin is. Uh, and maybe in a, in a particular way, it, it, as it relates to how man is made in the image of God, in particular to his, his community, his relations, it, along with that, degrades and debauches and... Um, makes a mess of society, perhaps in, yeah, in particular ways, uh, specific ways, unique ways. Where are we at right now in our society? If we compare ourselves to Sodom and Gomorrah or Canaan, um, we may be tempted to think, well, we're, we're there. We've reached rock bottom. I think that once we get to our next lecture, uh, I think that we will see that perhaps we have not yet hit rock bottom. But it is tempting to think so. Let me give you a few snapshots of where we are at currently. Here in BC, in Canada, we are in some ways at the forefront of the new sexual revolution. Uh, in Alert Bay, Recently, there was a news report that Rebel News did, Andrea Humphrey, um, somebody I know quite well, in which a sex educator spoke with a primary school class about masturbation. And uh, in this lesson, she had those, uh, the, the children, she gave them a floor plan to a house and, and, and asked them to mark off where there were places that were acceptable for them to touch themselves and in places where, they, where it was not. Um, there may be a case, one might think, of sort of a rogue sex, sex educator, one that um, you know, is, is far on the fringes. And yet, there is a K-2 lesson plan still up, I believe, last time I looked, on the BCTF website uh, that is very much in line with this uh, lesson that, that this, this woman did in Alert Bay, which normalizes masturbation and in fact, in fact instructs children to draw genitalia on blank male and female body forms. This is for K-2, still up at the BC Teachers Federation website, as far as I know. Our SOGI123 principles in this province uh, state that privacy and confidentiality is, is an intrinsic part of this um, what's sometimes called a program, um, but, but certainly a set of principles that are, they're here in the entire province. Um, they inform the entire province's approach to SOGI 123. And what this means in practicality is that children who have certain sexual behaviors or gender identity behaviors at school, that those behaviors or identities are not reported to, to parents. That's that's the basic underpinnings uh, and, and foundation 
of their perspective. In fact, one of these sex educators speaks about this principle and says that if those children are not are, are, uh, have a different gender identity at school than they have at home, it is because they assume that home is not a safe place. And so they hide it from parents. Moving to a particularly grotesque and sort of fetishistic example. Uh, in the news recently, there has been a shop teacher in Ontario in a high school who dons grotesquely large prosthetic breasts at work. Some of you may have seen um, this news item. And the local school district did nothing about this. And to, uh, to this point in time, I think it still has done nothing uh, concerning this teacher. There are other, um, I mean, again, the word that's often used in culture is fetishistic. I think that that's probably a gross understatement to call it this, but there are other fetishes that have, instead of being you know, put to death immediately, have been coddled in our, uh, in our country here recently. I, I just heard from somebody I trust uh, a great deal that uh, their friend is looking into pulling their child out of a school because there is cat litter that has been placed in the bathroom in which some students are using that, claiming to be and identifying as cats, using that um, rather than to use the washroom. And if that sounds just too far gone, so grotesque, uh, this is not the first time I've heard about this. Uh, this, is, this is the second time I've heard about it. The other case I heard about was in a university. Um, currently, because of Bill C-16 and other policies, violent male rapists are being placed in our women's prisons. They are fully intact and in, and in some cases have actually perpetrated sexual abuse against women in those in those prisons. How did we arrive at this place as a society? That's what we want to consider here in this first lecture this evening. Um, I'm going to touch on, on several movements, ideologies, cultural events, influential individuals uh, over the last couple of centuries. As I do this, it will not be comprehensive. I'm not saying much about Sigmund Freud. Perhaps more, much more could be said. Um, I'm drawing to some degree from Carl Truman's book, The Rise of the Modern Self. I believe that's what it is called. Uh, it's quite an academic book, um, a little difficult, although recently he has come out with I, I, what I understand is a more uh, popular version of, of some of the same material. Um, the name of that book escapes me right now. But the, the other book that I've drawn from, uh, which, is, which is quite accessible, uh, although more provocative in what it presents as examples, uh, is Paul Kengor's book called Takedown. Um, Paul Kengor is a, um, somebody, a historian with some, some expertise specifically on communism, and we'll talk about communism to some degree here. But let me start with at least touching on, um, and I'll move very quickly through this, but touching on the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was um, a movement 
with people like uh, Descartes, although he perhaps came a little later in the movement, Rousseau and others, that really moved the center of truth from divine revelation to the self. Not everything in the movement was bad. Um, I appreciate uh, quite a bit of, of, of Descartes and what he said, and there would be others as well that would be related to this movement um, that I have read and appreciated certain aspects of what they state. And in many ways, some of them at least are speaking out of a very recent theological heritage. And so some of that comes through in, uh, again, at least some of the authors of this movement. But there's a good reason that some theologians have suggested that instead of it being called the Enlightenment, it ought to be called the Endarkenment. That it, it really, in moving the, the center of revelation or the center of truth from the divine revelation from God to our own perception, it opened us to the ravages of sin, uh, what is called the noetic effects of sin, how it darkens the mind and uh, allows and, and does not allow us to rightfully perceive the truth, even though looking out into our world, given our God-given senses, is a, uh, it is a very real, applicable way for us to get at the truth, but it is um, it is to be guided by the controlling aspect of divine revelation. We move forward um, quite a ways to the mid to late 19th century with Marxism. Marxism was a class struggle by the, the workers of that society, in most cases very poor, um, the, against the, the bourgeoisie, those who were kind of the upper class, those who ran the economic world at that time. But it had a very anti-God perspective. Um, Karl Marx and Engels and others and this anti-God perspective led them to throw off the, the bounds of, um, of God-given order in so many different areas of society. And that included the family. Um, Karl Marx famously wrote of the abolition of the family uh, as a central tenet of communism in the Communist kind of, uh, Manifesto. Even earlier than that, an early American socialist by the name of Robert Owen, um, he considered marriage together with private property and religion as one of an unholy trinity of what he called, quote, monstrous evils. He can, let me say that again. He considered marriage, private property, and religion to be an unholy trinity of, quote, monstrous evils. That seems to me to be, in fact, a triad of very good ways in which God has ordered society, um, maybe even Trinitarianly triadic. Uh, yeah, religion being upward-oriented, marriage being inward-oriented, private property being outward-oriented. Engels was, in fact, even more radical than Marx. He taught that one of the benefits of the liberation of women from the economic bondage of home life was, and this is a quote, unconstrained sexual license. 
unconstrained sexual license. And these early communists practiced what they preached. On the whole, almost to a last man, they had destructive family habits. Karl Marx did not care for his family. He wouldn't lift his hand to provide for them. And his, uh, his family, in many cases, um, went poor, unfed. In one case, he had a young child that died because they had to live in a place that was impoverished and, and uh, it was open to the elements. Engels had a string of affairs. He never married, or if he did, there's some conjecture historically whether he did or not. Um, he, uh, yeah, he, he's, uh, when that woman died, he, he took another woman and, and didn't marry her either, except again with some conjecture, perhaps on her deathbed. These men left destruction behind them wherever they went, and yet they have had a very strong influence on, on history ever since. Uh, Lenin and Stalin picked up, as you might imagine, picked up these ideas in their communism. Um, a Russian woman in 1926 wrote for The Atlantic, uh, which is quite a well-known publication still around. And um, yeah, The Atlantic published what she wrote, this, this letter, in which she stated that the Bolsheviks regarded the family like every other bourgeois institution with fierce hatred and set out with a will to destroy it. She, she cataloged many sins, um, and Kengor talks about these in his book. Um, he, he mentions among them that there was an extreme proliferation of divorce, uh, rising to levels unseen in human history. In fact, it was not uncommon to meet Soviets who had been married and divorced upwards of 15 times. 15 times. Abortion, too, um, rose to, to levels that just stagger the mind and make the heart weep. Um, quoting from Kengor, by 1934, Moscow women were having three abortions for every live birth. And so great was this, and I'm going to mention Margaret Sanger in a minute, Margaret Sanger being the... Um, the founder of Planned Parenthood, that when Margaret Sanger visited Russia, uh, at that time had not been pushing so strongly for abortion, but rather for birth control. At that point, the levels of abortion in, um, in Russia made her very uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable. That was the, just the, the great degradation of that society. The seeds of ideology always flower sooner or later, and the anti-family sexual immorality of the Marxists, it, it bloomed into destructive fruit wherever it was sown. Margaret Sanger was an example of this, not directly related to communism, although there were some ties um, in some ways which Kengor notes in his book. But she was, um, she was known not only, of course, for being the founder of Planned Parenthood. Some of you may know that she was a eugenicist. 
she considered it the role of science and of good society to make sure that those who had mental or phys physical handicaps were not born um, and to do all they could to, um, to make sure what she called these human weeds did not proliferate in society. Many of you may also know that she was a raging racist. Um, she was probably anti-black, although that is, there is, there, there's no smoking gun for that. There's different ways in which some of her statements could be taken depending on whether you have any interest in defending her or not. But it is very clear, very clear that she wanted um, blacks to, to not have children um, or nearly as many children. It is very clear that she was a racist. And in fact, her statements about aboriginals in Australia uh, is nothing short of staggering. She viewed them as subhuman animals. Uh, but what many people do not know about Margaret Sanger is, is her uh, sexual immorality. And it is, I think, it seems to me quite clear that one of the reasons she pushed so strongly for birth control is that she had um, an interest in, in, again, unconstrained sexual intercourse. And she didn't want the fruits of, uh, of that behavior. Uh, she was married and she had children, but she didn't take a great interest in them uh, and being responsible for them. And she had a string of affairs um, yeah, throughout her life, which really left her husband a mess. Uh, at one point, she wrote a letter to her 16-year-old granddaughter. So again, a minor, endorsing, kissing, petting, and even intercourse. As for intercourse, this is a quote um, she told the minor. I'd say three times a day was about right. Something is clearly very wrong there with that woman. Um, so these are, are some of the influences that lie behind um, where, we, where we are right now and, and came to have a measure of uh, considerable influence in society. Uh, another one around the same time, another person around the same time of Margaret Sanger was uh, sexologist Alfred Kinsey, whom many of you have heard of who completed uh, many of his so-called studies in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, it, is, it is quite appalling to see how Kinsey these days is recognized as sort of a avant-garde um, <clears throat> researcher who was kind of ahead of his times. He was a deeply debauched individual. Um, there is very strong reasons to believe that Kinsey, at the very least, approved. We don't know whether he participated in, but he at least approved repeated child sexual abuse for the case of his studies. Um, and it's, it's, it's horrifying. I'm not going to say anything more about it, but it's horrifying the sorts of information that he included in his studies. Um, I'm not going to give you 
examples, I'm just, you have to trust me that he was extremely debauched in his own practices. Um, I, I guess I'll mention, there's some things I'll leave out, but um, I will mention that his, his own life was uh, completely, like so many of these people, completely messed up. Um, <clears throat> I know it's not a very technical term, but he, he pimped out his wife to his sex research and colleagues. And again, it just shows how, how influential um, <clears throat> some of these just anti-family, um, sexually immoral people are right now who are often celebrated. Let's turn from some influencers to some, uh, back, back to some movements. We've talked about Marxism and its anti-family approach. Um, Postmodernism rose with the uh, with academics like Michel Foucault and Jacques Derrida. Um, they built to some degree on the the idea of the sort of the class struggle or the um, yeah I think we'll call it that a class struggle of Marxism, and 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 spoke about the in, inherent oppressiveness of social and hierarchical establishments beyond the economic system. So for instance, uh, the church and religion uh, was viewed as oppressive by the postmoderns because it orders our lives. Uh, and they wanted to throw off, throw off God and his order. Postmodernism had its seeds in, in higher uh, academics, but it has trickled down over the years uh, to, to really what we get now is kind of an approach of, of just complete subjectivity when it comes to truth. It, uh, you may not know the term postmodernism or Foucault or Derrida, but you will know the, the effects, the, um, what, we, what we find in society based on their influence, especially in you know, the mantra, uh, you know, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. That, that idea that it's all subjective has its roots in postmodernism. And, and Jack Derrida famously said, il n'y a pas d'or text, uh, which means there is no context. In other words, you pick up a book, whether it's the Bible or some other book, and, and you're not, you don't get to look for what the, the author intended. There's, there's no authorial intent. There's no ultimate meaning. There's no, yeah, there's no author trying to communicate to you. It's just whatever you and you get from it. That's the idea behind postmodernism. Derrida also, though, went further, I, I think, from what I understand, I haven't read either of them um, greatly uh, in depth, just kind of a smattering of them, but I understand that Derrida um, posited that language itself is oppressive in that it, it orders how we relate to one another. And we'll, we'll see how that bears out even in the, uh, in the current debate uh, around language and transgenderism, etc. cetera. Um, Richard Rorty, who I think most would probably put into this same group of postmoderns, uh, he candidly stated, see if this doesn't sound familiar, that the job of professors like him, and this is a quote, is to arrange things so that students who enter as bigoted, homophobic, religious fundamentalists will leave college with views more like our own. And, quote, escape the grip of their frightening, vicious, and dangerous 
parents. It seems like that's the place where we have arrived. Well, fast forward a little bit to the sexual revolution. And because it is relatively well known, I, I won't comment too greatly on it. Um, but certainly it normalized um, premarital sex, free love, it was, it was called um, homosexual intercourse as well. Uh, so many kinds of, of sexual immorality at that time. Feminism followed um, closely on its heels, although you could argue perhaps that, that perhaps it occurred at the same time, depending on your view of that, that history. Um, and feminism, similar to, to, to postmodernism, again, posited a struggle. Uh, a casting off of the boundaries, the chains of, of culture, of traditional culture and, and norms. Um, and feminism posits that there is an inherent misogyny, um, an inherent anti-woman form to some of our most basic institutions, traditions, and experiences. I remember, um, so this is going back a little ways, but I remember in high school, my friend and I going up the stairs and we had, we were uh, moving just a little bit faster than our female English teacher, uh, who actually was a very good English teacher. Uh, and Chris had the audacity, I, 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 you know, he just thought of it a little bit before I did. He had the audacity to open the door for this teacher. Uh, and, uh, and, the answer that came back to him was, I can open this door just fine myself. Thank you very much. And uh, that's, that's the kind of idea that we get. And of course, it gets far more hostile even than that uh, from, from feminism. We also had the gay movement that, uh, that arose in the, uh, in the 70s and throughout the 80s. But I want to move uh, to intersectionalism. No, maybe, no, I, I better make at least a comment here on, on the gay movement, um, where we're going to spend a, quite a bit of time in, in subsequent lectures unpacking quite a bit about sexual orientation, so that's why I'm moving somewhat quickly over it here at this, at this point. Um, nevertheless, it ought to be mentioned that it, it still had the characteristic of this, of this class struggle, this us versus them, and the idea for the first time, although kind of coming out of some of the, the past struggles, whether it was Marxism, whether it was postmodernism, this idea that you are defined by the struggle. It's not, just, it's not just a protest in which you take part, but it orders your life. It defines who you are. And this leads into, um, into intersectionalism as a modern movement, and this is what I'll close with here in this lecture. Intersectionalism has arisen just in the last uh, 10 years, maybe it goes back a little bit further than that, maybe 15 years. Intersectionalism takes the ideas of all these different, you know, struggles, um, these different categorical class struggles, whether it's feminism, whether it's, you know, women against men or the, you know, the patriarchy, whether it's Marxism and, and the, uh, um, 
is it the proletariat against the bourgeoisie, whether it's people throwing off uh, the, the constraints of tradition or, or church or religion. It takes all these ideas and the race struggle as well. I for, shouldn't forget about that. And, and, and it binds them all together. And what it posits is that because there are negative effects of being the victim in one of these oppressive relationships, that if you belong to more than one victim class, that you are doubling up or tripling up or quadrupling up on the amount of negative effects of society's oppression against you, right? So some people find themselves at the intersection of multiple struggles within society. So for instance, a lesbian woman is, uh, is oppressed because she is a woman and because she is homosexual. So there you've, there you've got some intersectionalism going on. But if you are a black, obese lesbian, then all of a sudden you've got four struggles in which you are involved and four ways in which you are victimized. And because so many of these previous ideologies and then this perhaps happens slowly, but surely, because each one of these movements posited that we need to give power to those who are victimized. Then now all of a sudden, within our modern society, what we find is that those who fit into these minority categories, they are held up and, and given more influence in so many different in so many of these different ways this is why you get this idea within our culture that you know if you are a white heterosexual male you've got nothing to say why well because you're you've always been on top you've got you there's, there's no struggle in which you're a part you've always been part of the the dominant class and so you've you've had your time in the sun and so now you can be quiet and you can let those who are, who have so long been the victims, you can let them now run the show and let them speak and have their, and have their peace. Let me just reflect on this for a minute from a biblical perspective. First of all, we ought to recognize both for the sake of apologetics and for the sake of just the truth and how God would want us to relate to the world, that there is a nugget of truth almost always in so many of these wrongful ideologies. And the nugget of truth here, uh, just thinking specifically about intersectionalism for, for a minute and how it picks up on some of these past movements, is that it is true that we are to have a special interest in helping those who are, you might say, downtrodden in society, or who may be victims in, in, in different ways. Um, the scriptures talk about looking after the poor, the orphan, and the widow. And in fact, um, where God grants us strength, where he grants us power, where he grants us, uh, I'll use the word privilege, it, it, gets, you know, it gets kind of 
messed up in the modern use of it, but I, I'll, I'm happy to use it for a moment. Where we have that, we ought to use it for, for others who may not have that same, those same benefits and blessings in society. So there's a, there's a nugget of truth that we ought to recognize um, to where we are right now. Nevertheless, what we find, first of all, is that when you throw off divine revelation as your source of truth, you put yourself at the mercy of cultural movements. And so many people even today are now that may be completely atheistic are looking around and saying, how did we get here? Um, something's wrong. There are people that are waking up to, you know, and they may not go the full way to going, okay, well, maybe it was a mistake to, you know, legalize gay marriage, for instance. But at least they're seeing, listen, this whole transgender movement, the, uh, the open debauchery that we see in culture and in the media, this is, we've got some serious problems here. It starts with the fact that we have left divine revelation. We have not let it be our founding principle, and we've opened ourselves up to the unreliable view of ourselves and our culture and how the pressures of our world can shape our view of family and sex and gender. I think another thing we need to wrestle with and be aware of is that we see if we take a look at the throw of history in, in regards to some of these movements is that the beliefs always bear fruit. Your beliefs always bear fruit. Whether Margaret Sanger set out to kill blacks, black people, African-Americans, we, you know, we don't, I, mean, I don't know if that's clear or not, but the result is certainly that because of the seed that was sown. Your beliefs always bear fruit. When Marxists like, like Engels and Owens and Karl Marx himself, when they operated from beliefs that clearly showed little care for family and a desire for sexual immorality. It's not surprising that you get the fruit of what took place in, for instance, communist Russia. So beware of your beliefs. And I encourage you to renew your mind after the, after the image of your creator, as it says in Ephesians, so that when it comes to your influence, and yes, you have influence, even the least of you, quote unquote least, <laughs> when it comes to your influence in your church, family, your children, your grandchildren, they will bear fruit of your beliefs. Make sure to found that on the Word of God. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Joshua Lectures series on sex, gender, and the image of God. You can find more lectures by going to newantiochinstitute.com and click on the tab Joshua Lectures or by finding us on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform by searching for Proelium. 
If you'd like to know more about New Antioch Institute, you can email us at admin at newantiochinstitute.com. Thanks very much. Take care.